Part 3 of History of the Thirty Years' War, Volume 5. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by S.S. Kim, Seoul, South Korea. History of the Thirty Years' War, Volume 5 by Friedrich Schiller, Part 3. The activity of Duke Bernard had hitherto been impeded by his dependence on a French general more suited to the priestly role than to the baton of command, and although, in conjunction with him, he conquered Alsace-Saverne, he found himself unable, in the years of 1636 and 1637, to maintain his position upon the Rhine. The ill success of the French arms in the Netherlands has cheated the activity of operations in Alsace and Breisgau, but in 1638 the war in that quarter took a more brilliant turn. Relieved from his former restraint and with unlimited command of his troops, Duke Bernard, in the beginning of February, left his winter quarters in the bishopric of Basel and unexpectedly appeared upon the Rhine, where, at his rude season of the year, an attack was little anticipated. The forest towns of Laufenburg, Waldshut, and Säckingen were surprised, and Rheinfeld besieged. The Duke of Savelli, the imperial general who commanded in that quarter, hastened by forced marches to the relief of this important place, succeeding in raising the siege, and compelled the Duke of Weimar, with great loss, to retire. But, Contrary to all human expectation, he appeared on the third day after, 21st February 1638, before the imperialists, in order of battle and defeated them in a bloody engagement, in which the four imperial generals, Zavelli, John de Welt, Enkefort, and Speerreuter, with 2,000 men, were taken prisoners. Two of these, the Welt and Enkefort, was afterwards sent by Richelieu's order into France in order to flatter the vanity of the French by the sight of such distinguished prisoners and by the pomp of military trophies to withdraw the attention of populace from the public distress. The captured standard and colors were, with the same view, carried in solemn procession to the Church of Notre Dame, thrice exhibited before the altar, and committed to sacred custody. The taking of Rheinfeld, Rettlen, Fribourg was immediate consequence of Duke's victory. His army now increased by considerable recruits, and his project expanded in proportion as fortune favored him. The fortress of Breisach upon the Rhine was looked upon as holding the command of the river and as the key to Alsace. No place in this quarter was of more importance to the emperor, and upon none had more care been bestowed. To protect Breisach was the principal destination of the Italian army under the Duke of Feria. The strength of its works and its natural defenses bade defiance to assault, while the imperial generals who commanded in that quarter had orders to retain it any cost. But the duke, trusting to his good fortune, resolved to attempt the siege. Its strength rendered it impregnable. It could therefore only be stopped into surrender. And this was facilitated by the carelessness of the commandant, who, expecting no attack, had been selling off his stores. As under these circumstances the town could not long hold out, 
it must be immediately relieved or victualed. Accordingly, the imperial general Goetz rapidly advanced at the head of 12,000 men, accompanied by 3,000 wagons loaded with provisions, which he intended to throw into the place. But he was attacked with such vigor by Duke Bernard at Vitevaya that he lost his whole force except 3,000 men, together with the entire transport. Similar fate at Oxenfeld near Tann overtook the Duke of Lorraine, who with 5,000 or 6,000 men advanced to relieve the fortress. After a third attempt of General Goetz for the relief of Breisach had proved ineffectual, the fortress, reduced to the greatest extremity by famine, surrendered after a blockade of four months on the 17th of December 1638 to its equally persevering and humane conqueror. The capture of Breisach opened the boundless field to the ambitions of the Duke of Weimar, and the romance of his hopes were fastly approaching to the reality. Far from intending to surrender his conquest to France, he destined Breisach for himself, and revealed this intention by exacting allegiance from the vanquished in his own name, and not in that of any power. Intoxicated by his past success, and excited by the boldest hopes, he believed that he should be able to maintain his conquest even against France herself. At a time when everything depended upon bravery, when even personal strength was of importance, when troops and generals were of more value than territories, it was natural for a hero like Bernard to place confidence in his own powers and at the head of an excellent army, who under his command had proved invincible, to believe himself capable of accomplishing the boldest and largest designs. In order to secure himself, one friend among the crowd of enemies, whom he was about to provoke, he turned his eyes upon the landgravine Amelia of Hesse, the widow of the lately deceased landgrave William, a princess whose talents were equal to her courage, and who, along with her hands, would bestow valuable conquest on extensive principality and well-disciplined army. By the union of the conquest of Hesse with his own upon the Rhine, and the junction of their forces, a power of some importance, and perhaps a third party might be formed in Germany, which might decide the fate of the war. But a premature death put a period to these extensive schemes. Courage, Father Joseph, Breisach is ours, whispered Richelieu in the ear of Capuchin, who had long held himself in readiness to be dispatched into that quarter. So delight was he with this joyful intelligence. Already in imagination he held Alsace, Breisgau, and all the frontiers of Austria in that quarter, without regard to his promise to Duke Bernard. But the firm determination which the latter had unequivocally shown to keep Breisach for himself greatly embarrassed the cardinal, and no efforts were spared to retain the victorious Bernard in the interest of France. He was invited to court to witness the honors by which his triumph was to be commemorated but he perceived and shunned the seductive snare. The cardinal even went so far as to offer him the hand of his niece in marriage, but the proud German prince declined the offer, and refused to sully the blood of Saxony by a misalliance. He was now considered as dangerous enemy and treated as such. His subsidies were withdrawn, and the governor of Breisach and his principal officers were bribed 
at least upon the event of Duke's death, to take possession of his conquests and to secure his troops. These intrigues were no secret to the Duke, and the precautions he took in the conquered places clearly bespoke the distrust of France. But this misunderstanding with the French court had the most prejudicial influence upon his future operations. The preparations he was obliged to make in order to secure his conquest against an attack on the side of France compelled him to divide his military strength, while the stoppage of his subsidies delayed his appearance in the field. It had been his intention to cross the Rhine, to support the Swiss, and to act against the Emperor and Bavaria on the banks of the Danube. He had already communicated his plan of operations to Banner, who was about to carry the war into the Austrian territories, and had promised to relieve him so, when a sudden death cut short his heroic career in the thirty-sixth years of his age at Neuburg upon the Rhine, in July 1639. He died of a pestilential disorder, which in the course of two days had carried off nearly 400 men in his camp. The black spots which appeared upon his body, his own dying expressions, and the advantages which France was likely to reap from his sudden decease, gave rise to a suspicion that he had been removed by poison, a suspicion sufficiently refuted by the symptoms of his disorder. In him, the Allies lost their greatest general after Gustavus Adolphus, France a formidable competitor for Alsace, and the Emperor his most dangerous enemy. Trained to the duties of soldier and a general in the school of Gustavus Adolphus, he successfully imitated his eminent model, and wanted only a longer life to equal, if not surpass it. With the bravery of a soldier, he united the calm and cool penetration of a general and the persevering fortitude of the man with the daring resolution of youth, with the wild ardor of the warrior, the sober dignity of the prince, the moderation of the sage, and the conscientiousness of the man of honor. Discouraged by no misfortune, he quickly rose again in full vigor from the severest defeats, no obstacles could check his enterprise, no disappointments conquer his indomitable perseverance. His genius perhaps sought after unattainable object, but the prudence of such men is to be measured by a different standard from that of ordinary people. Capable of accomplishing more, he might venture to form more daring plans. Bernard affords, in modern history, a splendid example of those days of chivalry, when personal greatness had its full weight and influence, when individual bravery could conquer provinces, and the heroic exploits of a German knight raised him even to the imperial throne. The best part of the duke's possessions were his army, which, together with Alsace, he bequeathed to his brother William. But to this army, both France and Sweden thought that they had well-grounded claims. The latter, because it had been raised in name of that crown, and had done homage to it. The former, because it had been supported by its subsidies. The electoral prince of Palatinate also negotiated for its reserves, and attempted, first by his agent, and latterly in his own person, to win it over to his interest, 
with the view of employing it in the reconquest of his territories. Even the emperor endeavored to secure it, a circumstance the less surprising when we reflect that at this time the justice of the cause was comparatively unimportant and the extent of the recompense and the main object to which the soldier looked, and when bravery, like every other commodity, was disposed of to the highest bidder. But France, richer and more determined, outbade all competitors. It bought over General Erlach, the commander of Breisach, and the other officers who soon placed that fortress with the whole army in their hands. The young Palatine, Prince Charles Louis, who had already made an unsuccessful campaign against the emperor, saw his hopes again deceived. Although intending to do France so ill a service as to compete with her for Bernard's army, he had the imprudence to travel through that kingdom. The cardinal, who dreaded the justice of Palatine's cause, was glad to seize any opportunity to frustrate his views. He accordingly caused him to be seized at Moulin, in violation of the law of a nation, and did not set him at liberty until he learned that the army of the Duke of Weimar had been secured. France was now in possession of a numerous and well-disciplined army in Germany, and from this moment began to make open war upon the emperor. But it was no longer against Ferdinand II that its hostilities were to be conducted, for the prince had died in February 1637 in the 59th year of his age. The war which his ambition had kindled, however, survived him. During a reign of eighteen years he had never once laid aside the sword, nor tested the blessing of peace as long as his hand swayed the imperial scepter. Endowed with the qualities of a good sovereign, adorned with many of those virtues which ensure the happiness of a people, and by nature gentle and humane, we see him from erroneous ideas of monarch's duty, become at once the instrument and the victim of the evil passions of others. His benevolent intentions frustrated, and the friend of justice converted into the oppressor of mankind, the enemy of peace, and the scourge of his people. Amiable in domestic life, and respectable as a sovereign, but in his policy ill-advised, while he gained the love of his Roman Catholic subject, he incurred the execration of the Protestants. History exhibits many and greater despot than Ferdinand II, yet he alone has had the unfortunate celebrity of kindling a thirty years' war. But to produce its lamentable consequences, his ambition must have been seconded by a kindred spirit of the age, a congenial state of previous circumstances, and existing seeds of discord. At a less turbulent period, the spark would have found no fuel, and the peacefulness of the age would have choked the voice of individual ambition. Now the flesh fell upon a pile of accumulated combustibles, and Europe was in flames. His son, Ferdinand III, who a few months before his father's death had been raised to the dignity of king of the Romans, inherited his throne, his principles, and the war which he had caused. But Ferdinand III had been a close witness of the sufferings of the people, 
and the devastation of the country, and felt more keenly and ardently the necessity of peace. Less influenced by the Jesuit and the Spaniard, and more moderate toward the religious view of others, he was more likely than his father to listen to the voice of reason. He did so, and ultimately restored to Europe the blessing of peace, but not till after a contest of eleven years waged with the sword and pen, not till after he had experienced the impossibility of resistance and necessity had laid upon him its stern laws. Fortune favored him with the commencement of his reign, and his arms were victorious against the Swedes. The latter, under the command of the victorious banner, had, after their success at Wittstock, had taken up their winter quarters in Saxony, and the campaign of 1637 opened with the siege of Leipzig. The victorious resistance of the garrison and the approach of the electoral and imperial armies saved the town and banner to prevent his communication with the Elbe being cut off, was compelled to retreat into Torgau. But the superior number of the imperialists drove him even from that quarter, and surrounded by the enemy, hemmed in by the rivers, and suffering from famine, he had no course open to him but to attempt a highly dangerous retreat into Pomerania, of which the boldness and successful issue border upon romance. The whole army crossed the Oder at the fort near Furstenburg, and the soldiers, wading up to the neck in water, dragged the artillery across when the horses refused to draw. Banner had expected to be joined by General Wrangel on the farther side of the Oder in Pomerania, and in conjunction with him, to be able to make the head against the enemy. But Wrangel did not appear, and in his stead he found an imperial army posted at Landsberg with a view to cut off the retreat of the Swedes. Banner now saw that he had fallen into a dangerous snare, from which escape appeared impossible. In his rear lay an exhausted country, the imperialist, and the order on his left. The order, too, guarded by the imperial general Buchheim, offered no retreat. In front, Landsberg, Kustrin, the Warta, and a hostile army, and on the right, Poland, in which, notwithstanding the truce, little confidence could be placed. In these circumstances, his position seemed hopeless, and the imperialists were already triumphing in the certainty of his fall. Banner, with just indignation, accused the French as the order of this misfortune. They had neglected to make, according to their promise, a diversion upon the Rhine, and by their inaction allowed the emperor to combine his whole force upon the Swedes. When the day comes, cried the incense general to the French commissioner who followed the camp, that the Swedes and the Germans joined their arms against France, we shall cross the Rhine with less ceremony. But reproaches were now useless. What the emergence demanded was energy and resolution. In the hope of drawing the enemy by stratagem from the order, Banner pretended to march toward Poland and dispatched the greater part of his baggage in this direction with his own wife and those of other officers. The imperialists immediately broke up their camp and hurried toward the Polish frontier to block up the route. 
Bukhaim left his station, and the order was stripped of his defenders. On a sudden, and on the cloud of night, Banner turned toward the river, and crossed it about a mile above Kustrin, with his troops, baggage, and artillery, without bridge or vessels, as he had done before at Furstenberg. He reached Pomerania without loss, and prepared to share with Wrangel the defense of that province. But the imperialists, under the command of Gallas, entered that duchy at Lipses, overran it by their superior strength. Usedom and Volgast were taken by storm. Demin capitulated, and the Swedes were driven far into lower Pomerania. It was, too, more important for them at this moment than ever to maintain a footing in that country, for Vogislaus XIV had died that year, and Sweden must prepare to establish its title to Pomerania. To prevent the Elector of Brandenburg from making good the title to that duchy, which the Treaty of Prague had given him, Sweden exerted her utmost energies and supported its general to the extent of her ability, both with troops and money. In other quarters of the kingdom, the affairs of Sweden began to wear more favorable aspect and to recover from the humiliation into which they had been thrown by the inaction of France and the desertion of their allies. For, after their haste retreat into Pomerania, they had lost one place after another in Upper Saxony, the princes of Mecklenburg, closely pressed by the troops of the emperor, began to lean to the side of Austria, and even George, Duke of Lunenburg, declared against them. Ellen Breitstein was starved into a surrender by a Bavarian general de Welt, and the Austrians possessed themselves of all the works which had been thrown up on the Rhine. France had been sufferer in the contest with Spain, and the events had by no means justified the pompous expectation which had accompanied the opening of the campaign. Every place which the Swedes had held in the interior of Germany was lost, and only the principal towns in Pomerania still remained in their hands. But a single campaign raised them from this state of humiliation, and the vigorous diversion which the victorious Bernard had effected upon the Rhine gave quite a new turn to affairs. The misunderstanding between France and Sweden were now at last adjusted, and the old treaty between these powers confirmed at Hamburg with fresh advantage for Sweden. In Hesse, the politic landgrave in Amelia, with the approbation of the estates, assumed the government after the death of her husband, and resolutely maintained her rights against the emperor and the house of Darmstadt. Already zealously attached to the Swedish Protestant party on religious ground, she only awaited a favorable opportunity openly to declare herself. By artful delays and by prolonging the negotiations with the emperor, she had succeeded in keeping him inactive till she had concluded a secret compact with France, and the victories of Duke Bernard had given a favorable turn to the affairs of the Protestants. She now at once threw off the mask and renewed her former alliance with the Swedish crown. The electoral prince of the Palatinate was also stimulated by the success of Bernard to try his fortune against the common enemy. Raising troops in Holland with English money, he formed a magazine at Meppen 
and joined the Swedes in Westphalia. His magazine was, however, quickly lost, his army defeated near Flotha by Count Hatzfeld, but his attempt served to occupy some time the attention of the enemy, and thereby facilitated the operation of Swedes in other quarters. Other friends began to appear, as fortune declared in their favor, and the circumstance that the state of Lower Saxony embraced a neutrality was of itself no inconsiderable advantage. End of part three.